Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec and best-selling author of The Power of Playing Offense. In my journey, I have discovered that there are two types of people in this world. The difference between elite performers and the rest of the pack, or what I like to call those that play offense versus those that play defense. Defense always on their heels, offense on our toes. Defense playing not to lose, offense playing to win. Defense, the market dictates the terms. Offense, we operate on our terms. Playing with purpose, playing with passion, and taking control of our future. So now, the question is, how do you want to play? And here on the Playmakers Podcast, we play offense 10 out of 10 times. As we ramp up toward today's episode, pull out your notepad so you can capture all the action so we can make plays and level up together. Hey, what's going on, Playmakers? I hope you're as fired up for today's conversation as I am, because today we're going to celebrate, and it's going to be special. It is halftime of the inaugural season of the Playmakers podcast. So typically we learn and are inspired and transformed by one guest per episode. How does four sound? Today, you are going to get to meet four Playmakers in their own right, all in the spirit of us amplifying how much we can level up to celebrate this halftime occasion. The four folks you're going to meet, Jordan Harbinger, one of the world's top podcasters, Erica Wasser, a star entrepreneur, David Siegel, president, CEO, LA Sports Council, and last but not least, Santor Nishizaki, former leader at NASA and Disney Imagineering. So you'll get four unique perspectives But the common through line is we're going to talk about people. As people are the drivers of relationships, we'll learn how to network. We'll learn how to personally transform, how to become the best version of ourselves, how to drive impact, and how to live with inner purpose. All of that to come thanks to our four guests today. It's time to level up. It's time for our first guest. Jordan Harbinger is a Wall Street lawyer turned podcast interviewer with an approachable style and a knack for securing high-profile guests. His show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, was selected as part of Apple's Best of 2018. Today, The Jordan Harbinger Show has over 11 million downloads per month and features a wide array of guests like the late Kobe Bryant, Dennis Rodman, Tip T.I. Harris, Tony Hawk, Caesar Milan, Simon Sinek, Eric Schmidt, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, to name a few. In addition to hosting the Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan is a consultant for law enforcement, military, and security companies, while also teaching skills on networking, which you're about to learn right now. Let's dive in. I know right now we all have this expertise 
and different things. And if I was to say from everything I know about Jordan, relationships and networking are right there at the top. And perhaps you might uh, word them differently, but I think of you as an expert in relationships and networking. So now we know where it comes from. What I'd love to bring our listeners in on is how is it applied to the future chapters of your life? So we, we kind of covered this early piece, but now tactically you say, well, okay, there's been two chapters in terms of we have Art of Charm. We have the Jordan Harbinger show. I, I've seen your online course about digging the well before you're thirsty. All of these concepts around relationships and networking. So tactically, what can you share with us about how you've been able to apply it ever since? Yeah, so I really do sort of practice what I preach and walk the talk when it comes to networking. You know, like every day I'm grabbing my phone, I'm going down all the way to the bottom of my text messages to those dead threads where those weak and dormant ties are. You know, the guy you went out to lunch with like four years ago. And I, I re-engage four people. I call it connect four. And I re-engage four of those threads every day. And it's like, Hey, it's Jordan Harbinger. We met 2017 cafe gratitude, San Diego, uh, been a minute. How are you? I've got a kid now I'm working here. I live here. This is what my business is like. And you know, you get like a 75% response rate, maybe 50, but you're re-engaging all these people over time. And as time goes on, you're top of mind for hundreds and hundreds of people and you're up to date on hundreds of and hundreds of people. So I can send them opportunities. I can make introductions and I get opportunities at an unstoppable clip. You know, someone will say, Hey, good talking with you last month. Do you still do keynote speaking or do you do keynote speaking? Yeah. Why? Oh, I'm going into a sales meeting right now and we need a keynote for our March, 2021, uh, sales conference. I want to throw your name in the hat, you know, budget is 15 grand. And I'm like, great. So did I make just, you know, did I just make $15,000? Cause I sent you a text three weeks ago. Yeah, probably, you know? And, and so it's a numbers game and, or you'll end up with somebody going, Hey, uh, you know, you might not know anything about this, but do you know, would you happen to know if you would be interested in interviewing general Stanley McChrystal? I work with him on his new book, press. And I just, you texted me a while ago and I look and you have a podcast and so I'm getting all kinds of opportunities like that. And the opportunities that I don't get for myself, I often get for other people. You know, someone will say like, well, if you ever need anybody that knows how to build websites and I'll be like, okay, cool. File that up here and then put it in my CRM. Cause I use the CRM software connectionfox.com. And then if someone's like, Hey Jordan, I like your website, you know, who built it? I'll go, you know, we did a lot of this with this other group. They're busy, but also there's this person and here's their portfolio. It's a friend of mine. I'll make the intro. So I'm referring clients to people all the time. And then whenever I need anything, people can't wait to help me because I've referred them, you know, a client to build their website. And I referred the freaking dentist who's cleaning their teeth, you know, like the, and it doesn't cost me anything. It's like a little bit of an investment of time every day, like five minutes, but the stuff is just compounding over the, over time. It's like if you invested 10 bucks a day and you just bought, index funds with it. You'd have a ton of money by the time you retired. And this is like five minutes a day that everyone else would just waste on Instagram, you know, and I'm like, Oh, who can I introduce? Who can I re-engage? So I do that regularly. And these are the compound interest. So people are often like, man, you always are up to something. You're always doing something. You're, you're always getting these opportunities. What's going on. And I'm like, this is why you know, people don't just Google me and go, this is the guy we want to hire. It's like I'm fresh top of mind for hundreds of people at any given time. And that's why I'm getting these opportunities. 
All right, Playmakers, it's time for our second guest. Erica Wasser is a thriving entrepreneur, has been host of an HGTV show. She's even cut her teeth as a comedian. Transitioning from stand-up to startup, she founded Glam & Go, a salon and blow-dry chain and membership program. And most recently, she co-founded Prosper at Work a workforce management software for hourly and shift-based teams now used by some of the country's most recognizable brands to manage and connect their teams. She has a serious knack for taking big leaps, bold risks, and showing up like the rock star she is. Ladies and gentlemen, Erica Wasser. What started as a stand-up comedian turned TV host turned entrepreneur. Now on company two, and we're going to unpack all of that, but maybe because we want some giggles. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to tell us a joke. Don't worry about that. But stand-up comedian, I'm just fascinated. Don't know too much about it. How'd you get into it? Why'd you get into it? And for all of us, like, what's that preparation looks like? Like, I can only imagine. So just talk to us about the comedic space. I mean, it is the most fun thing to do in the world for me. Um, I still... Wish that I had like the time to dedicate it to it, to do it properly or well. Um, maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of fell into it my senior year of college and I got like bitten by the bug um, and I just really enjoyed it and it was fun. And it was something that I just, you know, I did it once. Um, it was at Dick's Beantown Comedy Vault. There you in, go. In a, bar basement and I slept my three best friends there because they wouldn't give me stage time unless you brought people it's called like a bringer show and I don't know what made me think like this is what everyone wants to do on a Sunday night um but essentially my friends were like all right well one way or another like we'll drink either like to commiserate or to celebrate like how bad can this be and um it wasn't terrible I had a really like lame joke about the Red Sox and the T, ah. <laughs> which is the train station there. Um, you know, not my best work. But then I was just like, it's just something clicked for me. And then I went back the next Sunday and the next Sunday. And then ultimately mm. it went from like, oh, you don't have to bring people anymore. Like, you're fine. Like, you're going to, you do well. You can just start coming to like going to open mics and making friends. And then kind of grew and grew and grew from there. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was a very strange hobby that I didn't expect to love. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I love that. So a hobby that you turned out to love. Let me ask you this, because most folks listening in have, we've probably told some jokes, more bad than good. But in your case, this hobby turned craft. It's all about how can we learn through experience and then apply it to life. So if you could really transport yourself back and say, here's something I picked up as a person or as a professional from that chapter as a comedian that I've been able to leverage and apply to my life in present day, what would that be? Oh my God. I mean, if you are a leader, you're always doing stand up, right? Because mm-hmm. ultimately you are taking risks, taking mm-hmm. chances gauging your audience and changing course. Yeah. So everything that I learned in stand up actually applies to my life today. Um, especially if you're fundraising, 
Yes. Right? Because, um, you know, whether it's fundraising or making quick decisions or leading a team, the basic skills of paying attention mm-hmm. to how you're being perceived and making sure that you're thinking through um, what are my potential risks. Like for me, as a female stand-up um, and one that is like a bit more feminine, one of the first things you have to do is address who you are, right? Okay. So if you don't break that barrier with your audience, especially at you know comedian comic clubs, or typically like date night or groups of girls or the worst groups of guys. <laughs> you know, and so you really have to establish yourself in a way that is both welcoming, approachable, but also at the same time, like, I have the mic, you have a bar tab, that is our relationship for the next 15 minutes, don't fuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mic drop, no pun intended. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, I, I can, in in many ways, of course, I know you approached it and you, you brought up more of the feminine side, but I think from a human holistic level, so many folks listening in can 100% uh, resonate with that. So let me ask you this. One of the first things you brought up that what you took from that chapter tied to leadership and the first words out of your mouth were taking risk. So if I was to ask you, journey from start to present day, biggest risk you've taken and why did you take that risk? Well, it might be this podcast and because you asked. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, biggest risk I've taken and why? God, that's a tough one. You know, I know this sounds crazy, but I, I don't register risk in a way that makes sense, which I think is why. <laughs> okay. Well, so how do you how do you view risk then? Just talk to us about your version of risk and, and then we can pull it out from there. So my version of risk is that within reason, it doesn't really exist in that, you know, you make the best decisions you can with the information that you have, and you can't be so tied to the outcome that it affects the way you behave today. Ah, love that. If it blows up and it totally sucks, right? Mm -hmm. Everything does sometimes. Um... You know, you fix it. You change course. You leave the first business and you learn from it and you start the next business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you can only have regrets on the things you didn't do. Yes. And yes. so, right, like if that is if that is true, then like the risk is somewhat man-made. Right? Mm-hmm. But I'm but I am also a young single person. I don't have kids. I don't have a spouse. So right right, as you grow, as you age and like you have more to lose, I'm sure that my ideas on risk will change. But I started my first business when I was 26. Like the Mm -hmm. most somebody could put a lean on was my iPod. And (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I feel you. And I wish I could tell you I was in a much different financial situation at 33, but I now have an iPad too. (laughs) Evolution at its finest, folks. Love that. So let me ask you this. 
the way that you're approaching risk and push back if it, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but I see it as, and I, I actually look at the world in a very similar way that you do. Even you can say at, at a different chapter of life, different stage of life, especially like you said, I'm a new dad. And so I, I do see the world in a different way versus six months ago, two years ago, 10 years ago. But that said, I am who I am. I've got a consistent purpose and values and I make decisions in a similar way. I've tweaked it, but I haven't changed who I am. I'm still authentic to my core. So back to you, the way you're approaching it, I think of as you were very, some people take risk so serious, they get paralyzed, if you will, versus I viewed your take very refreshing, light. And so if I was to say, all right, it's a mindset on how you approach risk versus other people. So what are some practical ways for every playmaker listening in? If they say, I want to approach risk in a similar way, with a similar lens as you do, what are some practical ways that I could start to apply that? You know, I don't let good enough get in the way of perfect because perfect's not happening. You know, and like my co-founder would kill me for saying this because this is probably his least favorite thing about me. Um, but like you can plan as much as you want, but like planning doesn't replace doing. Right? Like sometimes you just have to do the thing mm. and then be knee deep and then you figure it out, right? Yeah. Like say yes to the contract that you're way too small for. Say yes to jumping off a cliff, even though like I barely can use technology myself, start a tech company. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just the way that I think about it is, okay, well, if I don't do it, what am I gonna be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, this sounds a little morbid, but, you know, you've never read like a autobiography of someone super elderly or gone into a nursing home and done community service with someone, you know, on the brink of dust and heard them go, well, I'm really pissed I did all of those things. <laughs> right. Because like, yeah. at the end mm -hmm. of the day, like the reality of life is that like risk is a is a construct that like essentially is just opportunity, cost and fear. Right. And so. If you think of it that way, um, I don't know. Well, I understand everything you're saying, and it ties now to what we could call your more recent chapters where the world is going to brand you as an entrepreneur. And I, I do want to talk a bit about Glam and & Go and now Prosper. But the big plunge of betting on yourself, getting into this entrepreneurial space, it takes a special person. It takes a special character. Not everybody is willing to, air quotes, take that risk. But you did, not once, but twice. And maybe you'll continue to do it and evolve uh, for, for the rest of life. So if I was to ask you, where does that come from in the sense of taking that leap. And I, I know just uh, Google's our best friend, so I can pull from your past. Correct me if I'm wrong. I understand your parents uh, may have come from that entrepreneurial space. So I don't know if it's something relative to parents, something relative to childhood or upbringing, but where did this kind of bold risk-taking persona come from? Um, yeah. I mean, my both my parents are entrepreneurial. Um, and so I've watched them take risks, um, and I've watched them build businesses, um, you know, and so I think having that support system, um, 
and role models of, oh, like, this is normal. Like, it wasn't weird to me. Mm. It was, you yeah. know, like, or like the highs and the lows, like, weren't weird to me. It was sort of like, oh, like, yeah, this is what it is. Like, I remember the first time I got sued, my dad was like, congratulations, you now officially are a business owner. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the party. You've you have officially made it. <laughs> wow. Um, so you know, I think coming from that background, I definitely look up to my mom and my dad because both of them are so uh, strong and smart, um, and have been such great support to me that I think that's probably a big piece of it. As we take a short break from today's interview, I'd like to share a quick reminder to check out the episode show notes on playmakerspod.com, where you will find a treasure trove of key insights, thought starters, and additional resources from today's conversation. Also, a quick shout out to our show sponsor, Audible, who is offering each and every playmaker a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com. With that, let's get back to the conversation. It's time to level up. It's time for our third guest. David Siegel joined the Los Angeles Sports Council and Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games as president and chief executive officer of both organizations after a 22-year career with the L.A. Dodgers. With the Dodgers, he worked in every revenue-producing department, most recently as vice president of global partnerships after spending 10 years as the vice president of ticket sales. Under his leadership, the Dodgers achieved the highest attendance in Major League Baseball for five consecutive seasons. David is a leading expert in sports marketing and frequently shares his expertise delivering presentations and lectures at industry events and meetings in addition to university, undergraduate, and graduate sports business programs. Let's welcome David into the conversation. So looking at your Dodgers journey over 22 years from, as you said, unpaid intern to vice president, that is a massive, massive journey with many steps along the way. So you were in the sales vertical as I was when I was in the sports game for sure. And so I know that a big part of sales is performance. There is a scoreboard. How many widgets did David sell? How many widgets did Paul sell? We compete and may the best person win. I get that. What else besides metrics, besides sales numbers, there had to be something that led you from position A to position B to position C. And so for all the playmakers out there, whether we're in sales or not, what are the things that maybe aren't metric driven that we can do to level up our careers? Yeah, I would say there's two things that come to mind, Paul. I mean, the first one is, you know, not saying no to an opportunity. I mean, I think I think having an open mind and just saying yes. Don't don't ask what's my title going to be? Am I going to get paid more money? No, I'm just being real. Like at least no, no, I'm laughing because I've heard this a million <laughs> yeah. times. So keep yeah. going. Yeah. No, it's it's you know, and it's um not so much. It's, I guess it, I get that that's harder to do later in your career, but especially in the first you know you know whatever one to seven eight years of your career, just say yes. Yes to an opportunity. And I think, you know, the ownership changes um, ended up 
helping me because there was a lot of tearing apart of leadership teams and rebuilding. And I just said, yes. And so I kind of just, uh, you know, went with it and said yes. And, and those experiences, I think, really, really helped me. And I would say the other thing, non-metric related, and you'll appreciate this on the field of play and off the field of play, is how you elevate your teammates around you by your performance. So it's not just, it's not just you're in a vacuum, F everyone else, I'm making my calls, I'm selling my numbers. I don't, I think caring what the person to the left of you is doing and the right of you is doing and how your success in the context of a team elevates everyone around you. That I think, and again, there's no silver bullet. I can't say, oh, these are the things that you do. But that is an intangible that people see um, and that's it's just there and people have it. And we could probably name five or 10 20 professional athletes that do it, but you can't name what it is, right? They just do it. Yeah. So you're bringing us to care. You also earlier talked about relationships and you also said managing up, down, sideways. I want to come back to that, but with relationships, because that's one of those where, can you quantify relationships? I can quantify how many people I know, but can I quantify the depth of each relationship, the substance of each relationship, that's tougher. That's a little bit fuzzier, right? So for you, A, being not only in sales, but being extremely successful at it, then being in leadership and being extremely successful at it. If you could coach all playmakers listening in right now, what are your keys to either building a new relationship or enhancing an existing relationship? Well, I would start with not quantifying your relationships. I think when you start putting a ledger or a scoreboard against it, what can this person do for me? You're already going down the wrong, I think personally, the wrong path. Yes, of course, you want to take care of, you're going to take care of the people that you think down the road can help you. I got that. That's human. That's normal. But ultimately, I think at the end of the day, it's, I've always believed that, um, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, whatever, you put it out there, it comes back, you know, there's a million different terms for it. But, um, you know, I think any industry is a small industry and no matter how big it is, you know what I mean? You never know um, how people, where people are going to go. And quite frankly, you never know the direction your career or life is going to go and where things are going to take you. So, you know, I think, starting with the premise that everyone, you know, again, super cheesy, but everyone's equal, you know, and, and, and if you're in a position to help someone and you can do it without putting yourself in, in um, peril, you know, why not do it? Why not? You're just going to add equity. You know what I mean? To, um, with that person and who knows down the road how that can help you out. So I don't know if I answered the question, but no, you did. If I could really sum it up, because this is what I heard the spirit of what you said is give without keeping score. That's exactly it. Right. I mean, cause oftentimes I think we kind of turn into a transactional mindset of I'm going to help this person because down the road they can do X. And that's exactly what you said. But I think it's just that spirit of if I keep showing up as a giver, as a giver, as a giver, instead of as a taker. And that's another way for all playmakers out there trying to level up the career. I'll tell you, I, I've led countless folks in formal leadership roles and takers heavily outweigh givers. 
the number of takers. You are surrounded by more takers and givers. So you really want to stand out? Be a giver. There's a lot less traffic on that road. It's time for our fourth and final guest. Santor Nishizaki is on a mission to create a happier workplace by helping organizations increase generational awareness and discover strengths that can elevate people to reach their full potential. Something he has implemented in the boardroom as well as the classroom as he serves as a professor in multiple universities at an undergraduate and MBA level. Santor has served in leadership roles at both Nassau as well as Disney Imagineering when he was a part of the opening of Shanghai Disneyland. Hot off the press, Santor will be launching his first book this year, a guide on leading and working with Generation Z. With that, time to bring Santor into the Playmakers podcast. We call it the lifeline exercise. And so think of... uh, Line from left to right, left being birth, right being present day, above our peaks, below our valleys. These are moments, events, experiences that you have been through in life. Naturally, above the line, there's going to be a positive moment that has molded you and made you who you are today. And on the flip side, below the line, the adversity, the challenge, those gut-wrenching moments you didn't even know if you'd get off the mat, but you did. And so if you could describe biggest, most significant peak that has molded you and then the absolute low point that has molded you and made you who you are today. Gosh, that's uh, I, I know you sent me some pre-recorded pre-materials, but that's uh, that's a deep one. The first experience I had in leadership, uh, which really impacted me, was in high school. Um, I became I, was, I played volleyball. And um, one of the things, I was a team captain my senior year, and we ended up uh, losing, it was like our first preseason game. And since this is a, since you're all about sports, I'll give that sports analogy, right? Um, so I really cared about stats, you know, up until the point I was a team captain, and then I still did care about stats, and then we lost to a team that we didn't really like that we usually lose to, and I had a come to Jesus moment, brought every, the whole varsity team in the back of the bus and said, hey, you know, if we want to really be great this year, we need to put it, all the bickering aside, all this. I, I love winning more than any, more than my stats. Mm-hmm. Winning to me, competition is my number one strength. Um, ah. So that to me, I had an aha moment. I hate losing. Back then it was a lot more raw. Now I'm able to to really use it to, to spring off from, but that I hated losing back when I was younger. Um, so we ended up, uh, I said, okay, let's not look at stats, the newspaper clippings and surprisingly volleyball was in a newspaper, right? Uh, great sport. Um, and we ended up, uh, winning the league championship. The first one in quite some time up until recently, I think we had the highest winning, winning percentage in the history of the school for that, for our team. Um, so that, that was my first aha moment of leadership that I fell in love with it, which is like, oh, leadership is not about putting <laughs> yourself first, right? You, you think leadership, oh, you're, I'm a leader. I'm a leader. You know, I get to tell yeah. people what to do. That's not what it is. And you see a lot of first-time managers that make that mistake. No, Being yeah. a leader is the most selfless thing you could be. Yeah, maybe you get the title. Maybe you get a little bit more pay, sometimes a lot more. 
Um, but it's really about putting other people first and, and your success is judged by their performance. So how do you, that's why I really learned how to motivate other people uh, and not put myself first, uh, which is which was fine. And, and I like like I said, I like winning and winning more than, than my own personal. It's a team mm-hmm. thing. Right. And then, gosh, I ended up losing my dad when I was in my senior like a couple of weeks before my senior year. And that really shook me. Um, him and I were very close. I know, like you lost your dad. We're very close, yeah. um, and that really pushed me to. I th- I'd say people could go in two directions, right? When you, especially when you're in high school, you could go down one road or the other. It pushed me to grow up overnight. So that was the worst moment, and help, but I used it as a point to spring off from. To, it helped me grow up overnight, and I said, "Okay, I'm. I can only depend on myself." My dad was uh, the sole breadwinner in my family, yeah. so that made it a lot more clear. I better get my act together. So then, uh, since then, I, my work ethic has been ridiculous. Um, back then, my work ethic was good if I was interested in things, but after that, it became I was able to channel what I'm interested, and in, my work ethic increased exponentially, knowing that I could only count on myself. So that really helped, uh, I guess you could say, define me going further. And also what made me want to be a better dad and quit working for the corporate world so I could be around more. And and, be, yeah. and now it's cool, too, because my first son, I didn't get to see as much the first two years because I was working overseas. He was with me, but I was you know working 12 hours or 10 hours or whatever a day and now with my second son that was just born i'm here helping out and it's cool to see him smile a lot for the first time and i like i missed a lot of that stuff i was in an airport um on a business trip when my son walked for the first time and that to me was heartbreaking and i wasn't home for a few days so my first son uh when he walked for the first time so that so i'd say yeah, and then having your kids right for the first time is a and, and sure. getting married so my wife is she has, she actually has an mba too and she helps me run my uh our business so that once meeting her and and that has really helped define on who i am and allows me to do what i really like to do she's really good at keeping everything organized um and bringing me back in when i go too far over to the work side um, or pushing me over to the work side when I'm, I'm hanging around too much the house. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say those are the biggest ones. Uh, so you saw below the line, above the line. And then the year I got my doctorate, I moved to China or I got the offer to move to China. My mom passed away, bought a house, had my first son. So there's, yeah. it was like a, was it EKG that year? <laughs> more, more above the line, a dip, um, so that was probably that was what 2014. So that was probably the biggest year uh, that helped kind of define the path. And then starting my business, it's tough starting your own business. It's, it's you know you and I have talked about this. It's scary if you. I was the only person currently at that time working, so it's tough starting your business. But you really, ha- I really went all in, and my wife was the one who supported me. So what do you think? Yeah. And she said, I think you should do it. Um, I think you're going to do amazing. And it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of work. But, you know, it's, it's, it's been the best decision I made. I get to see my family. And um, I, all of the success or failure relies on me. Uh, yeah, there's, there's so much that I love about what you just said. And so if I could 
understand it and make sure that I'm hearing clearly how you've been molded from all of those life moments. For one, even going back above the line, it was before you lead others, lead yourself. The key to leadership is self-leadership. And if you can do that, then you can pay it forward to others. And so that, that, that authentic and vulnerable look in the mirror, and in your case, it happened to be from a, a volleyball perspective, but it's a life perspective. And then below the line, and like you said, something we, I would say, unfortunately, of course, share in common is we lost our dad at a young age. And while for both of us that most certainly, I pray that it's the lowest of the low points because I wouldn't wish that upon anybody but there is a resurrection story in the sense of how you were, what you learned from it and taking ownership and responsibility and working your ass off after that point because of that spark that you got from that moment. And then now decades or however long it's been since later, now you're a dad. And so you get to have those moments. Well, on behalf of everybody, all the playmakers listening in, Trust that you have made a tremendous impact on all of us today in the terms of leveling up in business, in life, in all of the different aspects on how we just want to show up as our best self. And we never stop learning. We never stop growing. Most importantly, we never stop creating impact. So thanks, buddy. This has been awesome and really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's been fun as usual. Loved what you just heard? Share it with another playmaker. And if you gain significant value from today's episode and genuinely feel that you have leveled up, would so appreciate if you gave us a five-star rating. For all of today's show notes, head over to playmakerspod.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from this show, but all previous episodes as well. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you tune in from. And on a personal note, I'd love to connect one-to-one. Hit me up anytime on LinkedIn at Paul Epstein or Instagram at Paul Epstein Speaks. Playmakers is produced by Detroit Podcast Studios in collaboration with Purpose Labs. Wishing you a high-impact week of action and purpose. See you next time on Playmakers.